Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Uh, our key scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. Um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. These are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, some of you in this room may be basketball fans. I don't know if you uh, spend any time watching the Golden State Warriors in our house. We spend a lot of time watching the Golden State Warriors and talking about the Golden State Warriors and looking things up online about the Golden State Warriors and printing pictures of the Golden State Warriors and drawing pictures of the Golden State Warriors. And yes, you get the idea. So I don't know if you saw the game on Friday night, but uh, there was a little uh, side action that happened on on Friday night. And if you watch the Warriors, you know who Draymond Green is. Um, He's uh, one of the key players for the Warriors, and he's a pretty tough dude. And he likes to talk a lot to those he is playing, to those in the crowd, to just about anyone that will listen to him. And uh, so... Friday night, there was a bit of a scuffle between Draymond Green of the Warriors and Bradley Beal of the Washington Wizards. And uh, they were coming down the court, and Beal had the ball, and he tried to, he shot the ball, and Draymond blocked it, and then had some things to say, which Beal didn't appreciate. So Beal ended up kind of behind uh, Draymond, and he ended up sort of reaching around and like kind of smacking him in the face a couple of times which is not so these are giant men by the way can we just can we just acknowledge that also uh and smacks him in the face a couple of times and Draymond responded by sort of turning around and they hugged for a minute and uh then they fell to the ground and then people were separating them and and pulling them apart and Draymond came away and his jersey was ripped and you know he was talking all the way down the corridor and into the locker room and that's that's what happened and uh, Draymond said after this whole thing, they were both tossed from the game, he said, I don't know what I'm supposed to do if someone hits you twice. Man, you're taught as a kid not to allow that. What was I supposed to do? Now, here's the thing. He's right. He's right. We are taught from the time that we are small that we need to not let people take advantage of us, that we need to stick up for ourselves, that if someone picks on us, it is right for us to defend ourselves. This is a basic cultural human understanding of what happens in these kinds of situations. Someone comes at you, you go back at them. You can't start the fight, but you should finish it, right? This is is the rule. Of all the things that Jesus has told us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, 
This one in particular pushes us to the edge of what we may think is reasonable. When Jesus asks us, what he asks us to do is complex and difficult, and what he asks us to do is not something that you can do on accident. You cannot stumble into this kind of behavior. I would even go so far as to say, you almost have to train yourself to be a certain kind of person in order to follow through with the directive that Jesus gives. And here is sort of the bottom line of this particular passage. We are called to respond in a way that is different than how everyone else would respond. Now again, the challenge with this particular thing is that the cultural response doesn't seem so out of bounds. There is a particular rationality to it that appeals to us. And yet Jesus tells us very clearly that when we find ourselves in certain situations, we are to respond differently than how everyone else would respond, even if their response makes sense to us. Therefore, everyone else may hit back when they are hit, but you are not going to hit back. Instead, you will do the completely nonsensical thing of offering your other cheek to them. If, if someone comes and demands something, sues you for something that is yours and not theirs, you are not to fight back. You are to give them more than what it is they are trying to take from you. When someone asks something of you, even something that is 100% unreasonable, you will go beyond what it is they have demanded. What does that mean? And why is that so important to Jesus? I think it's for this one very simple reason. We live in a world where everyone believes they have certain rights. The way that they should be treated, the things that they should have, the kind of life that they should live. And we live in a world that often pursues those things at the cost of sometimes everyone else. Jesus says, as a Christian, you are called to give up your rights. Whatever it is that you think you deserve, whatever it is you think you should have, however it is you think you should be treated, you are to give those things up for the sake of Christ. Because in the process of giving yourself up for the sake of Christ, you will begin to treat people in a way that no one else on the face of the earth will. And you want to make a difference for God in this world? then act like God calls you to act and don't act like everyone else. Jesus says whoever wants to find their life will lose it. This is so, so different 
than the world around us. It would even be hard to explain to other people if we started acting this way, giving more, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. It wouldn't even, we'd have to explain it to others. It wouldn't make sense to them. But get this, that is exactly the difference that Jesus wants us to live. To where we are following God with all that we do. How are you challenged to live your life this way? Who, what situations have you found yourself in with what people where you have demanded your rights and in so doing you have lost the sake of Christ? So uh, I want to, before we get started here, I just want to give you a very brief update on some things that have been going on over the past several weeks. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we are going to continue distribution, but uh, we really need you to help us with that, and, and not just by showing up here, but um, I, I'm hearing from a lot of people like you're, you're talking to friends or you have family or you have acquaintances or whatever it is that might say to you, I need such and such. Or you, uh, someone on Facebook that you know says that they need something too. If you hear of anyone that needs something, please send them to us. Okay? Uh, we have a lot of resources right now. Um, and we, we're not, j just to sort of give you a, an idea about what we're working with, um, we have all the stuff that we have gotten from Church of Christ Disaster Relief. We've been able to give away several beds to people. We've been able to buy bedding for others. Um, just so you know, we're not offering money to people. Um, however, we have in our disaster relief fund, we've been getting money from churches all over uh, the Bay Area, from across the country. We applied for a grant uh, that we got through the 700 Club of all places. And um, we have north of $30,000 to, to help people with. Um, we are wanting to, we are hoping to have the opportunity to help people clean up their homes. So if you have someone whose home survived and uh, maybe insurance has done a certain amount of things, but they need help beyond that, cleaning up their yard or uh, repainting inside. We want to do all this kind of stuff. And beyond that, I have churches calling me asking what they can do to come up and help. So I would really appreciate it if you would view us as a resource. So rule number one, okay, don't make promises to people. And, and what I mean by that is don't say, oh, well, our church can give you blah, blah, blah. Because we might not have it at this moment, right? But whoever you hear of that has needs of any kind, uh, send them to us. Uh, contact Larry, contact me, and we will uh, do everything we can to help people uh, in need. Sounds fair? Okay. But we can't do it if we don't know and if we don't get connected. So we really do need help getting connected uh, as we move forward. Um, so let's take a second and let's just pray about the opportunities that we have and let's thank God for 
um, the resources that we have to be able to help our community. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the chance as a church to help the city of Santa Rosa. God, we all have friends and family that have lost, that are hurting, and God, we would love to be um, a representative of your love in their lives. Um, so would you help lead us to people that need help? Would you, get, would you grant the people that need help the ability to ask for it? I know how hard that is sometimes to ask for things. But God, we really want to help uh, as many people as we can. So we, we ask your blessing. Give us wisdom on uh, how to use what we have and, and give us the opportunities that we need God to make a difference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are now uh, on week five of our campaign, and uh, as we do every week, I'm going to give you the turbo train review here at the start. Um, so we, we started our, our campaign again with a few key points, and that is that as Christians, we are trying to live our lives in the way that God wants us to, but there are all kinds of other ideas that surround us in our culture, and those ideas are trying to influence just as much, if not more sometimes than, than God is influencing us. And one of the really tricky things that we've talked about going on is that it's not just like a bad idea is presented to us, but that ideas can be like viruses. And the way that viruses work sometimes is they coat themselves in something that the body needs, like a protein. And so the body takes the virus in, not knowing that it's something that's bad for it. In the same way, uh, bad ideas can latch on to good ideas. And so it seems like something that's true, and because it seems like something that's true, we accept it. And we are influenced uh, by five basic worldviews. Uh, so the five that we have been looking at are uh, secularism, which claims that uh, we, humanity, is at the, the apex of all things. Uh, Marxism, which declares that life is about capital and the path to peace is equality through violent overthrow of all existing social structures. Uh, Postmodernism, which insists that uh, objective truth, truth that matters for everyone, doesn't actually exist. That there's only... Uh, Lowercase t truth. You know, everyone gets to decide for themselves. A new spirituality asserts that there is a higher consciousness or God force that is at the core of reality, and your job is to stay connected to that. And as long as you stay connected to that and send positive things into the universe, you will get positive things back. And then lastly, we've been looking at Islam, which teaches that everyone is born Muslim uh, in submission to Allah, and they must conform to Islamic truth or be uh, conquered through holy war. And so we've answered several questions, uh, and, and we've looked at how the Christian worldview is different from all of these other worldviews. Uh, the question, am I loved? Why do I hurt? Does my life have meaning? Uh, why can't we just get along, and is there any hope for the world are the two questions that we have left. So hopefully, and I, I don't know how it's been working for you. I know our small groups have gotten off track a little bit over the last couple of weeks for good reason. Um, but hopefully through the small groups and through the material that we're covering, you're starting to see a difference between how we should view the world as Christians and how everyone else is viewing the world and those ideas that they are putting into place. Um, so to this week's question, we're just going to jump right into it now. Why can't we just get along? What will it take for us to stop fighting 
and find harmony. Now, it's a very interesting time to ask that question. Why can't we just get along? When are we going to stop fighting? And it's an interesting time for that because it seems to me that we live in a time that fights about pretty much anything or everything. Now, I think part of that is because of the rise of social media. Uh, with social media, you see something that someone says or did or whatever, and you can immediately make some sort of comment on what that is. It's almost like we used to think things in our head but not say them. Right? We used to do that. <laughs> and now we think things in our head and we don't say them, we type them. And it all just spews out in this kind of, I didn't really think through this moment where we voice our extreme displeasure with whatever it is. The anonymous voice on the Internet is even worse. Like username uh, JoeJack427, that no one knows who it is, right? Who can just walk around the Internet and say whatever they want about anyone without any repercussions. And the way it feels to me now and I think this is true for us as a country, is it, it feels like people are constantly on the attack. Constantly on the attack. Let me just give you an example uh, that Nisha shared with me uh, from the Facebooks uh, over this last week. Uh, as many of you know, uh, celebrity chef Guy Fieri lives here in Santa Rosa. And... Um, his house was in danger the, the first night of the fire, and he evacuated at 2 a.m., and um, his house did survive, um, but he ended up down at the fairgrounds. Uh, the fairgrounds was an evacuation center, and he was there for several days, and he bought food, and he brought his giant uh, barbecue grill trailer thing down there, and he cooked and cooked and cooked. And he made all these different things, grilled all these meats. He was in line serving people as they were going through. And he spent, he spent entire days out there. And lots of money. And lots of money. He was out there. Um, it's a good story. I, I kind of like the story. I mean, w whether you like Guy Fieri or not, it's, it's kind of a neat thing that he did. That he didn't have to do. Okay? However... Um, there are some people that really don't like the fact that he did this. It's true. Um, and <laughs> some, some of the main complaints uh, were that Guy Fieri was very insensitive because he grilled and smoked meats when there was a fire. And... So he should have used pressure cookers or made soup because that would have been more kind to our community. Others suggested that it was very out of line for him to bring his giant grill down to the fairgrounds and to show off to everyone that he has this giant grill and their homes had burned down, so ha ha. Um, 
Others suggested that there was no way he would have served anyone himself, that he stayed away from that whole thing. And then there are, of course, those that said, well, the whole thing was just a publicity stunt. You just want to get your name out there and you want to do all these things. So here is what, here is what Guy said to all of this feedback. He said, if that's what you think, because they actually asked him, they, the news, I, I believe, asked him you know, what, what he thought. He said, if that's what you think and you're that shallow at a time like this with what we're facing, then there's no change in your mind about that. This isn't a PR stunt. You don't see my banners up. I'm not promoting anything. I'm just here cooking. This is feeding people. People need help, and I'm here to help. That's it. And that was the end of his statement. Right. Welcome to 2017, though. Um, we have Nazis marching in the street. The leaders of countries are threatening one another with nuclear weapons. And we openly criticize people for feeding the hungry and homeless during a natural disaster. This is the world that we live in. And I, I just, this is something that I have, a tension that I have felt for many years. So it's not just been over the last, you know, 18 months or two years or whatever. But I feel like we live in a world where if you make a mistake, there is no overcoming that mistake. And whatever it is that you've done, this was a good thing, but even if you've done something bad, there's no coming back from that thing. You will always be the person who said this, or who did that, or who... And it, it concerns me um, because I wonder, like, are my children going to grow up in a world where there is so little love for others that when we see someone doing something, we go after them because they can't be doing it for a good reason? Or when someone makes some sort of mistake, they don't get a second chance. And we debate endlessly over whether they even deserve one. What will it take for us to stop fighting and find harmony? I don't know. I don't know. Um, conflict within humanity is not a new idea, like we know this, right? It's been around forever. Um, journalist and Presbyterian minister Chris Hedges noted that this is, this is pretty shocking. Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of those years, or just 8% of recorded history. 8% of our recorded history is without war. It's shocking, right? So what does that tell us about ourselves? We are contentious. That's a nice way to put it. We're ornery little sons of guns, right? It does, this is important for us, okay? Um, it, it tells us that there is something about humanity. Humanity. 
that seeks out conflict or that looks to defend itself against whatever we have declared as enemies or that does any number of things to create angst (laughs) in the world. So let's take a second and let's look at how some of the different worldviews try to answer this question. Uh, This week we're going to start with secularism. Secularism says conflict will cease when we quit worrying about the supernatural and focus on how society disrupts our natural goodness. Remember, within this worldview, humanity is the apex. So they say happiness leads to virtue, while the absence of happiness transforms benevolent beings into deadly monsters. Our environment can keep us from being happy, and so by changing the environment, we will all get we will get better at getting along. And so basically what they're saying is, if you are unhappy with the situation you're in, your job is to change the situation you're in, to put yourself back on top. And when you put yourself back on top, you'll be happy. And when you're happy, guess what will happen? You won't have conflict anymore. It's, I don't, it doesn't, doesn't work for me too well. Uh, postmodernism says conflict will, see, will cease when we stop pursuing the truth. This worldview, as we talked a little bit about last week, rejects all the big stories about why things are the way they are. Remember, there's no overarching truth that gives meaning to our personal experience. And then conflict is caused, therefore, by our pretending that our meta narrative, which is the account or our interpretation of events, is true. In other words, Conflict comes when Kathy tries to tell me that what she thinks is what I should think too. And until everyone just leaves everyone else alone to determine their own truth, we're going to continue to have conflict. Um, So postmodernism says that conflict comes about because in people's pursuit of the truth, I love this terminology, they trick others into thinking their position is right. If we all stop pursuing the truth, presumably conflict will cease. New spirituality says conflict will cease when we give up our egos and become one with the universe. Conflict comes from big egos and big egos come from not understanding our true spiritual power. When we become aware of our oneness with the universe, all our ego needs and thus our conflicts fade away. Islam Uh, The Quran says conflict will cease when everybody submits to a law, either willingly or by compulsion. (laughs) So conflict will make conflict cease. That's just so you know. Um, And conflict is more or less a part of this worldview. It is a means to an end. uh, And conflict is used to bring the world into submission to Allah. This morning, we're going to focus the most on the Marxist point of view. You'll have a chance to talk through some of those other worldviews in your small group this week. Uh, But like Islam, the Marxist worldview incorporates conflict into the way it encourages people to see the world. When we talk about worldview, which we've used that term a lot, remember it's, it's the ideas, the values, and things that you put together that color how you see things in culture and society. Okay? And all of these uh, ideas, all of these worldviews are trying to get you to see the world in a particular way. And this really shines through, I think, in this particular case with Marxism. 
the Marxist worldview incorporates conflict into the very way it encourages people to see the world. And so one of the primary things that it does is it encourages people to look at the world and to recognize that the world is wrong. Okay? That the world is wrong. But here's why it's wrong. Look around. Do you notice how wealth insulates some people from life's troubles while most people struggle? This is the reason why life is unfair. And so Marxist says, the Marxists say that they know how to bring an end to the conflict. It's to escalate it until everything breaks down. And when everything finally breaks down, then we will have an end to conflict. Wealth, they say, is a fixed commodity, which means that when one person gains assets, someone loses assets. All right? So it's not like one person gains and another gains. It's like one takes from the other. And with limited resources, you end up having the rich and the poor. And since we need money to pay for the necessities of life, this wealth inequality leads to conflict amongst us. And so the solution to this inequality is revolution. You need to break down the system so that there are no more wealthy or poor, so that everyone theoretically is on the same level. And once everyone is on the same level to where there is no, there are no wealthy or there are no poor, then conflict will stop. But it goes a step beyond that. Instead of just pushing this principle, what they also say is that the wealthy have gotten wealthy by breaking the rules and by taking from the rest of us. And not only that, but they've also managed to get laws enacted that protect their ill-gotten gain. So the job is that we are to take it back. We are to take back what we deserve. We are to take back from those who do not deserve it and who have gained it in the wrong ways. And by doing so and leveling the playing field and putting everyone in the same space, then conflict will stop. Each of these worldviews um, outsources the blame for conflict. I don't know if you noticed that, but conflict is always the fault of who? Someone else. It is someone else's fault that there is conflict. It's the fault of the religious. It's the fault of the rich. It's the fault of those who are looking for truth. It's the fault of those who refuse to let go of their individual identities. It's the fault of those who are in rebellion against Allah. And so these worldviews altogether, they sort of say that conflict won't cease until others change. Until others change. And if others change, then we will end up in a more peaceable world. But if others refuse to change then we're stuck. So, the Christian worldview stands in pretty stark contrast to this idea. And I want to just point something out. These worldviews and the things that we look at, there is, again, as we said earlier, there is some rationality to this. Uh, Particularly the Marxist worldview, which says, Let's level the playing field. Let me get what I deserve. Let me get what I should have. And you shouldn't have it. I should have it. And let's level this playing field. But Christianity talks about life and peace in completely different ways. And the best example of this, I think, comes from the life of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 22.
We'll be in Luke 22, starting in verse 47. Jesus has been in the garden with his disciples. He's been praying. He knows that the crucifixion is coming. While he was speaking, still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And then what does Jesus do? He goes with them. Now, let's set some groundwork here. What had Jesus done wrong? Nothing. Right? Jesus was faultless within this scenario. And the people that are coming for Jesus, had they done anything wrong? Yes, right? It's a complicated thing. Again, I've talked to you a lot about how we try to oversimplify what's going on between Jesus and the religious leaders, right? But they have lost sight of who God is. They don't recognize Jesus as the Son of God, and they are coming to take care of this so that Jesus doesn't overturn everything that they have worked to to build and create. Okay? So if we are just to look at this objectively, we can almost see the Marxist point of view in this. There are the elite that are taking advantage of the poor. I mean, Jesus was a homeless man. Okay? Now, the whole situation is exacerbated by the fact that this is unfair to the extreme. Right? Because who is Jesus, actually? The Son of God. And if anyone deserves to be treated differently, it's Jesus. Like These people have no claim over him, no right over him, none of those things. And so if we were to look at this situation, right, the Amnesty Project would be coming in immediately saying, this guy is not the guy you say it is. He's not guilty of these things. People would be up in arms because this seems like such an unjust thing to do. He hasn't done anything wrong, so why? But this is the situation that Jesus finds himself in. And so here's the thing. If Jesus were operating under human conditions, what would he have done? If he were to act like us, he would, he would have been like, suck a please, right? You can't arrest me. And what do you mean you're going to kill me? I don't... Des- he would have fought for his rights as the Son of God. It's just what he would have done, because that's what we would have done. In fact, his followers see the crowd coming, and they see that they're armed with torches and swords, and what do they ask? Should I get my sword too? And one of them does. Uh, the book of John names Peter. The other Gospels don't name who it is. But And, and Peter does... This miraculous thing that he cuts off one dude's ear, how you just cut off one guy's ear in a sword swing, you know, it, it's still mystified. Someone has explained it to me before, and I'm still like, I don't get it. 
right? You just you cut off his ear. So Jesus, Jesus reacts to this entire situation in a completely different way. The first thing he does is he puts an end to the violence. Stop. Like, stop this, right? Tells his follower to put their swords away. Tells the people. And then he does a very Jesus thing. He heals the man's ear. This person who had come to arrest him, he heals his ear. And to top it all off, he told them, I don't know why you're here like this. You've come with torches, you've come with swords, you've come as a mob. And what does he tell them? It's kind of funny, actually. I've been around you every day. You could have walked up to me in the temple and just said, come with us. And instead, you've come in the middle of the night with torches and swords. And then he just goes off with them. But he makes this interesting statement. He says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Your hour when darkness reigns. I I think he's speaking about what's to come, but I think he's also speaking about what happened in this moment. Because this is the context of what he's saying here. What have they done? They have given in to sort of the most base human response to feeling threatened. They worked their fear up. They got a mob together. They went in the middle of the night because, you know, everything works better by torchlight. And they come to get him. And this is what Jesus says about it. As he, as he lives out an entirely different value in this moment, he says, this is the moment for you when darkness reigns. So, what is it, if this is how Jesus responds in this situation, which Jesus allowing himself to be arrested, beaten, dragged through the streets, and crucified, is the ultimate turn the other cheek. It is the ultimate give up your tunic as well. I mean, it is that verse we read earlier to the nth degree. What Jesus did. So, what is it that God desires for us? He desires for us to have peace and to not give in to our tendency to seek out conflict. He wants our behavior, how we interpret things, and how we respond to things to be completely different than what our natural tendencies may be. And as I said earlier, this is not something you can do by accident. You cannot stumble into being this kind of person. The Christian worldview approaches conflict through a word um, that you may have heard before. The word is shalom, which des- describes what life together looks like in a world that God has redeemed. And instead of placing the blame for conflict on others, this idea of shalom, of peace, restores peace, tranquility, and well-being in three different ways. The first one is this. Shalom acknowledges the conflict inside of us as well as among us. Okay, There is something inside of us that we are fighting against. 
And both the evil that is inside of us and outside of us has to be opposed. But shalom promotes unity rather than division because it recognizes that every person bears God's image and has an eternal soul. Okay? When we find ourselves in conflict, we are responsible for that conflict in some way, shape, or degree. And the only way for us to cut back on the amount of conflict in our lives is for us to recognize what it is inside of us that is causing that. Um, Nisha came home from the grocery store. Was it Monday or Tuesday? You don't know. Tuesday. Nisha came home from the grocery store. My notes say the other day, so I wasn't going to ask you that. And uh, she was standing in the, in the grocery aisle and she was checking her grocery list on her phone. We have this any list app and we have our grocery list there. And uh, while she was standing there, a woman approached her and said, um, I really don't think this is the place for you to be on your phone. <laughs> you may not have noticed, but some of us are trying to refill our refrigerators. To which Nisha said, well, I'm checking my grocery list. And the woman went off down the aisle, went around and came back again, at which point Nisha took her phone back out of her purse and looked at it as the woman walked by again. (laughs) You know why this happened, right? You know why this happened? It's obvious. Nisha is beautiful and the woman was jealous. That is why this happened. And, uh, you know, wherever we go, this is, this is what happened. But Nisha came home and she's like, I, I just can't believe she said that to me and what about that? And, and here's, I could be completely 100% wrong about this. But I told Nisha, you know what? I bet that she has a pet peeve about people being on their phones and public spaces. And with all the stress that she's been dealing with over the past several weeks, she now feels that she has a right to say to someone what she normally probably would not say. She's tired, she's worn out, and apparently she's angry at you. (laughs) The easiest thing to ignore in conflict is what we are bringing to the table. Why do I feel this way? Why am I angry? Why am I sad? Why am I offended? Why am I upset? And the thing that we like to say the most time is, well, it's because they did this to me. Or they said that to me. They're making me feel this way. I have really bad news for you. No one can make you feel anything. Something inside of you is responding in this negative way. And what Shalom calls us to is not just peace because everyone else is bringing things in order. It's peace because we are recognizing who we are and what we are bringing to the table. And we cannot forget, and this is the hardest part, I think, we cannot forget that the person we find ourselves in conflict with is a child of God and deserves to be treated with love even if they're not treating us the same way. And this is the rule from Jesus, period. Everyone is a child of God, and everyone deserves to be treated with love. Shalom is also different in the fact that it focuses on giving rather than taking. 
So instead of asking the question, I will find peace, or how do I find peace? Oh, it's by advancing myself. It says, no, you find peace as you give and love others. Give to and love others. Uh, Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, turn over there. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. We overlook this first statement, but this is perhaps, it's a devastating statement. Love must be sincere. Why is, why is that such a big, because why does he have to say that? Because there is insincere love. Oh, I love you. No, you don't. Right? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do you hear what he's saying here? He's trying to get one thing clear, make one thing clear to us, and that is this. It's not about us. It's not about you. And it's not about how you're going to feel better. And it's not about what's going to make you happy. And it's not about what you're going to accomplish to have a better life. No matter how much you might want to make it about you, it just isn't. Finding peace is not about you. And this is challenging, but but here it is. Christians are called to make all things about the well-being of other people, even to the detriment of their own well-being. Let me just give you a short example. I I have friends uh, that don't go to church, have never really gone to church, and we've seen them a couple of times, and we've talked about what my life has been like over the past three weeks. And on Monday... I took my first day off in three weeks. And I was working every week up until Saturday night, getting up in the morning, and it's like I couldn't find ten minutes to do anything. Like because I I was checking in with people or I'm trying to get this and we're trying to do and we're trying to set up all these things. Now, they could not understand why I was doing that or why I was pushing things that far. But here's the thing, and I'm, I'm not trying to set myself up as, as an example, but, but I'm going to. No. I'm not trying to set myself I really not. But that was just the reality of what it meant for, be a, to, for me to be a minister at this church at that time, right? And ultimately, it wasn't about how tired I was or how much of a, I needed a rest because that didn't matter as much as you mattered. As much as the people that had lost their homes mattered, as much as other people who didn't have a bed to sleep on, they mattered more to me than me. And I, I'm not always that good. <laughs> but this is what it felt like in 
that time. It is hard for us to put our own selves aside for the good of others. It is hard for us to wear ourselves out for the good of others because ultimately we always want to have ourselves sneak back in there. But listen to what he says. Be sincere in your love. Be joyful, patient in affliction and faithful. Share with those in need. Have people into your home. Bless. He does not use the word tolerate. Bless those who persecute you. In order to bless someone, you have to actively seek out a way to make their life better. A blessing is an improvement for them. And you are to bless someone who is persecuting you. So this is targeted blessing. You are going to bless someone who is trying to ruin your life. Think about that for a second. All of this is the way of the one who follows Christ. While others curse and persecute, you will bless. And then finally, Shalom focuses on love and not hate. From Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, let's just wrap this up here with these thoughts. Does it make a difference if someone has God in their life? Yes or no? Does God matter? Yes. Good. I'm, I'm glad you agree with me on that. Here is his point. You are going to go out and say, I know God, and I know forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And you're going to walk out those doors, and you're going to be nice to everyone who's nice to you. And you're going to love everyone who loves you. And you are going to spend time with those people you love to spend time with. And guess what? People who don't know God can do that. So congratulations. Good for you. There is normal behavior in this world, particularly when it comes to relationships and conflict. People who know God are going to do things differently. They're going to do things differently. Because you know what? People who don't know God can do a lot of the things that we do. But we do know God. And because we know God and the love of Jesus Christ, we are going to do things differently. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you are going to take God's name out into this world, this is the kind of person that you are called to be, a person of peace. Because you will not push conflict. You will not do the things that everyone else does. You will act differently. 
I would like to note here that Jesus is, what he's describing here is not a, dear Lord, I pray for that idiot that he would get what is coming to him and that he would realize that the world doesn't revolve around him because it doesn't and that he would see how right I am. Amen. That is not what Jesus is describing. We've already been told that we are to bless those who persecute us. And so when Jesus says we are to pray for our enemies, we are to pray for them. We are to ask blessing for them. This is not a begrudging kind of love. It is a love that is like the love of God. And God's love was put into a situation where the people that he created to love rejected him. Rejected him. And he chose to love more. And they treated him awful. In just these awful ways. And he chose to love more. And then they wanted nothing to do with him. They were happy with how things were, and so he sends Jesus to die for them, that they might know redemption and salvation. Whatever it is that you've got going on in your life, God has faced more of that. And God has chosen to love and be a redeemer in all of those things. This is what it means to be a child of God. This is what it means to be a child of God. Well, does that mean that we let everyone walk all over us? You know, does that mean that victims shouldn't stand up for themselves? No, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay? What we are talking about is us living a different kind of life. Where it's not about us, it's about God. And as we become about God, we change the world. Because we are doing things that no one else is doing. That no one else is doing. We are loving those who don't love us. We are praying for them. We are doing these things. And here is what God promises to us. That when you stretch yourself in this way, when you push yourself to love in this way, guess what you will find? You will find peace. Because the only thing you can control in any conflict is yourself. And if you act as a child of God, then your heart will not bear the weight of the hate that you're fostering. It will release that as you share the love of God with others. Amen? Amen. And when we live for others, our life improves. (laughs) It's crazy. Shouldn't work that way. But all these other things that are saying put yourself first, it doesn't make people happy. It's when we put others first that we find peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we love those around us as you love us. May we forgive those who have sinned against us. May we pray for our enemies. May we bless those who persecute us. May we look for opportunities to change people's lives for the better, whether they want it or not, Father. May we love in a way that is unqualified, in a way that extends past 
what we think is normal or good. And Father, as we act in this challenging way that you are calling us to act, to do these things, Father, may we change the lives of people around us because, God, you are a God who offers what nothing else can. So may we take you out into the places that need you, Father. And by loving others, may we find peace and may they find you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an amazing way. And we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.